Though it is today the fifth most populated country in the world, Pakistan did not exist as a modern state until 1947. Before then, it was governed by the British Empire and constituted a large part of the British Raj. Though the people living in what is now Pakistan and what is now India shared ethnic and linguistic ties, the British separated the region based on religion. India was designated for Hindus and Pakistan was designated for Muslims. This was a complicated issue with many sides and opinions for all parties involved. However, what remains clear is that the tense political climate after the partition led to riots, kidnappings, and widespread deaths. An unusual side effect of the partition is that the second tallest mountain on earth, K2, now officially became part of the new country, Pakistan. But what no one could have foreseen at the time was that K2 hidden and tucked away in the remote reaches of the Karakoram Mountains, would one day become one of the deadliest mountains on Earth. You are listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 19, K2. This episode is part of a larger series about the world's tallest mountains. If you'd like to follow along in the series, start with episode 17, about Mount Everest. However, you won't need to listen to that episode in order to understand this one. I just finished my first attempt at deep frying. How did it go? It went pretty well, actually. I was very scared okay. <laughs> and thought did that you, I was going to start a fire. But you, you have- it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Um, did you use like a deep fryer or did you just do it in a, in like a pan? I used a, a large pot and mm-hmm. I had a thermometer in the oil. Okay. Make sure that it didn't get too hot. Mm-hmm. Made some Chinese lemon chicken. Ooh. Very tasty. That sounds really good. I've deep fried a couple of times. It's, it's a lot of work and I'm also a little intimidated by it. Yeah, it's intimidating. So it feels a little yeah. scary, but then you finish and it's like, that wasn't even so bad and it tastes great yeah that sounds awesome fully recommend it nice i actually tonight made um apple well i make um banana bread oh do you really yeah banana bread's like the easiest thing in the world to make so that's always been my go-to for like snack i don't know whenever i need to provide something or or it's fun to have around for breakfast and stuff. But um, does it I'm, have yeast in it? Do you have to do a lot of like bread making? No, stuff? not really. No, it's it's not a typical bread in that sense. And so oh. it, it really is. There's like a list of six or eight ingredients. You mix them all together and then you put it in a pan. And, and that's it. it. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, but what I'm trying tonight is I'm making like a triple layer cake out of oh. it. So instead of baking it in a loaf or in muffins, I'm baking it. I, I finally got like a round, um, straight walled cake pan. Whoa. So I'm going to make a eared banana cake. Yum. Uh, because on Sunday, I get that's my daily or my weekly sweets week. So I'm going hard this Sunday and I'm making a triple layer banana cake. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. What are the other layers? It's just going to be three layers of banana um, with... With, like, um, icing in between or something? Yeah, with a cream cheese frosting in Yum. between. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, look at us go. I again. know, yeah. This has, <laughs> this has definitely been my, uh, what did you learn during quarantine? For, uh-huh. And, like, I didn't really start until about a month ago, but I'm going hard on culinary techniques. Very much yeah, enjoying I mean, we, it. We have, the two of us, I feel like this is pretty, most Americans have probably either started baking and cooking or started a podcast, and we've both done both of them. <laughs> done both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I have a getting to know you question for you. I'd love to hear it. Okay, this one is pretty straightforward. If you were going to buy a second home, would you want it to be... A lake house, a beach house, a river house, or a mountain cabin. So that's and I think pretty... I think I've covered all the bases. Unless there's a kind of house that I'm missing. 
like a kind of destination. I guess yeah. you could say St. George. <laughs> right. Like a St. George. Okay, St. George is the fifth option. <laughs> okay. I do love St. George. St. George is a St. nice... George is pleasant. Like. Yeah. A great place to have a little vacation home. For sure. So I have... Uh, this is pretty easy for me, except that you've included River House, which is... You know where that comes from? That comes from Virginia. That is what okay. people do in Richmond. Yeah. Yeah, like perfect. on the, uh-huh, okay, okay. Well, then that's easier, because um, I don't want to live, I don't want to live on the St. James Road. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want a mountain house, which is not that surprising, because that's where I'm from, but I would much rather be cold than hot, just as a rule. Oh, okay. And I love, so I would take a mountain cabin any day. I love, um, yeah, I love snow, I love... Um, the wildlife that you see up there and I mean I wouldn't say no to any of them and I love the beach but I don't think I could live I don't think I could live at the beach I think I'd I think I'd get tired of it so yeah put me in a mountain cabin any day of the week oh I love that answer I think I feel the same way about the beach like it's very picturesque and if you pick the right beach it can be nice and quiet and pleasant it might feel a little stagnant after a while Mm. I don't know. Maybe I'm totally wrong, and I would actually love that. Uh, My family exclusively vacationed to the beach my entire childhood. Oh. <laughs> like, we never, summer, and we were all super excited, and I still love going. Um, but we would all, we'd go to the same beach, and we'd go for a week every year, like, for the last 30 years, my family's done that. Oh, wow. And I love it, but I don't think I could live there. I think it would just be... Yeah, on the day-to-day, right? It would be too much. Exactly. And beach towns are kind of quiet and touristy often, I think. Right. I don't know. Right. Uh, I think I would also pick a mountain cabin, but I would. I also really love bodies of water. So in my dream scenario, it would be a mountain cabin that is next to a mountain river. Okay, yeah coming down out of the mountains and so you hear the rushing water but you also have the trees that would just be spectacular yeah i totally agree and that's that's why i was thrown off by a river house i was like well tell me about this river because yeah (laughs) but yeah like uh uh, like living by a a nice high mountain river what could be better i feel like you could get that in the pacific northwest right with the cascades for sure yeah yeah. i'm sure there's Um, out there with those big rivers when you lived in Utah, did you ever drive up like Mirror Lake Highway? Oh, where is Mirror Lake? I don't know if I ever went that far. It's um, so that region is back in the Uinta, so you go back like, uh, to Heber. I've never, then, I've been to Heber, but I haven't been past it. Yeah, you go, you keep going back into there, and that is probably the most beautiful place I've ever been, which might not be saying much because maybe I haven't been too many places, but it's pretty spectacular back there. I've seen photos of Mirror Lake, it looks beautiful. Yeah, that whole I've I've done a few backpacking trips back there, and I mean, there's well, it's that kind of thing, right? Lots of water in the mountains. Yeah, tons of lakes. I mean, that's why it's called what it's called, Mirror Lake Highway. There's just lake after lake after lake, and mountain goats, and all sorts of cool stuff. All right, so we're continuing on in our series of the world's tallest mountains, and today we will be talking about the second tallest mountain in the world which is K2. Uh, we're not going to do like the list in order, by the way, but I figured that K2 was, <laughs> was a good one to go to afterwards because it's a fascinating mountain. And I think unlike Mount Everest, it's not as well known. The first time I heard about K2 was maybe a couple of years ago. I, it wasn't that kind of thing where you learn about it, you know, starting in elementary school or whatever, like yeah. Everest. Is, I yeah, I've, I've heard of it. I know that it's a mountain, but that's literally all I know. That's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, K2 is quite fascinating. It, if you look at a photo of it, which I fully recommend that you do, and we will post a photo on, a, on the post about this episode, it's very picturesque looking. It looks fully diamond shaped, almost like a perfect pyramid. It has such a charismatic facade. I think it's more recognizable than probably the Everest facade. It's harder to tell what Everest looks like but K2 is just so striking and very individual 
I just, I feel like, and Jeremy kind of talk, talked about this, like it's hard to tell exactly what the tip top of Everest is. Don't you think? Yeah. yeah even just looking at photos, it's like, where is it? Yeah. And that's often the case with really high mountains. There's no questioning whether <laughs> no you're on question. top of the K2. <laughs> yeah. You kind of get the sense that from the top, you can turn like 360 degrees. Yeah. It's just a cone. Yeah. That's exactly it's what it looks like. It's, it's like a cartoon mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Very wild. K2 is very dangerous. It was called in the 1950s by somebody who tried to climb it, a savage mountain that tries to kill you. <laughs> so it has a very fascinating story. It's a very dangerous mountain. And we're going to get into more of the details of what makes this mountain unique. But I also wanted to spend some time in this episode talking about the country where the mountain is. And K2 is in Pakistan. It's on the border of Pakistan and China. And we'll talk a little bit about the history of Pakistan, how it became a nation in its modern sense today. So take a minute to look at Google Maps or a globe or whatever you have and see if you can find Pakistan. It's to the left of India and it's squished on the west between Afghanistan and Iran. And at the very top, it borders China. If you type K2 into Google Maps, you'll see that it's right on the border of Pakistan and China. And Pakistan is very geographically diverse. It has obviously these very tall mountains in the northern region. Uh, these are the Karakoram Mountains. But it also has the plains in the south. And it has the Indus River, which is one of the largest rivers by volume of water in the whole world. So speaking of homes where you could have a mountain cabin <laughs> and next to a river, Pakistan is actually the place. Yeah, there <laughs> which, you go. Very beautiful. Uh, Pakistan has a very diverse climate. It has at least 10 different climate zones. So there's a lot going on in Pakistan. Like up at the very top, it's mountainous. Down in the very south, it's desert. It's got a monsoon season because of its position in the globe. Hmm. Lots, of, lots of very interesting stuff happening. Yeah. It's the fifth most populated country in the world. And my jaw dropped when I read that. I don't think we yeah. ever talk about that. Yeah, I'm very surprised to hear that. Right? I mean, I think China, India, Russia maybe is populated. I'm not sure. But I would have I been surprised to hear Pakistan is the fifth. For sure very populated area of the world. It's next to India. It's next to China. There's just a lot of people here. Its capital is Islamabad, but its largest city is Karachi. And that's a city of 15 million people, which is almost two times as many as New York City. Good gracious. <laughs> Big, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the official religion in Pakistan is Islam, and the official language is Urdu. And those are two really important details, actually, in what makes Pakistan different from India. And we'll get into those later. But like India, Pakistan was, for much of the 1800s, governed under British colonialism. So like Tyler said, we wanted to discuss a little bit about kind of how Pakistan came to be Pakistan and, and India as well. Um, and it is a really interesting kind of trip through history. So... To put it simply, um, what once was British India, which is exactly what it sounds like, um, split, and it was Britain's um, kind of decision to do so, and it was also Britain's decision how it got split up, and it didn't go great. That's, the, <laughs> that's my overview that I will give. Um, and so there's a long history. We're going to kind of end up at the eventual... Um, division where the two self-governing countries of India and Pakistan came into existence um, at midnight on August 15th of 1947. But there are, there is some backstory that we'll also discuss. Um, but that eventual division in 1947, which is much later than I would have guessed. Yeah, same. Um, and, and, and I should also start all of this off with a huge disclaimer. This topic that I'm about to um, very um, amateurly guide us through is so expansive like there, this is a multiple series of books have been i'm sure and should be written on this topic so forgive all of like the 
the glossing over I'm about to do. Um, if you've got corrections, you know what? There's going to be so many. Keep them to yourselves. I was going to say, tell us, but <laughs> keep it to yourself. I know that I'm probably making mistakes. We do not want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is fascinating. Like just about every paragraph that I read as I was going through this, I was like, well, that paragraph has a has a whole other page I want to go read about you know, the, the Maharaja and all of this cool stuff. And so it's a huge topic and I'm only going to very poorly scratch the surface, but this division that eventually culminated in 1947, um, the lines that kind of drew the division were religious lines and it caused a huge refugee crisis. There was ethnic cleansing and a lot of really terrible stuff. Um, but to kind of go back in 1905, so Britain, um, had control of India. It was a, a colony of India um, this is kind of smack dab in the middle and maybe towards the end of the time where they would say the sun never sets on the British Empire. And that's because from the little island up in the North Sea, they had also, you know, everywhere had had British flags flying. They were in India. They were in, you know, the Bahamas. They were all over the place. And so that's kind of the time we're talking about. And in 1905, the um, the men with the walrus mustaches that I'm sure you can picture were having problems in um, the region of British India called Bengal. And in 1905, they decided, um, it's kind of a snapshot of what would eventually happen. They said, we need to divide Bengal. And Bengal was basically like a, a state. It was like a, a political subdivision of British India. And they said, Bengal, there's all of this conflict. There are, um, um, there are Hindus and there are Muslims and they don't get along. And so we're just going to go ahead and just chop it up real fast. And this side, you know, like a Scott or like a masking tape line down the middle of a room, you guys over here, this is where the Muslims are going to be. And this over here is where the, the Hindus are going to be. Uh, did not go well, lots of unrest. And it was actually eventually reunited in 1911. Um, and that's a, a kind of a nice snapshot of, of kind of the larger picture of what's going on here. And that particular incident um, as well as kind of the overall division of India itself, got interrupted by a couple things. First, this one that um, started in 1905 really got interrupted by World War I. As you can imagine, um, um, Britain was obviously um, involved from the beginning there. And that um, the wars did a lot to kind of shape the way that the colonies thought about themselves, the way Britain kind of chose to rule them, because when you suddenly have to defeat, you know, the Kaiser or Hitler, um, that kind of takes your focus and then the colonies or wherever you've got your interests spread out. Um, in some ways, you might, your focus might go off from there. And in other ways, as we'll talk about here, um, it kind of brought into, brought into perspective how important and how powerful India was. It was huge. It had all these people. And so when, when um, these Indian men went and fought for, um, for the queen, in World War One, or may have been a king at that point. Tyler, was it a king or a queen? <laughs> World War One. In like, yeah, in the 1917. King. King, king. George the Fifth. Okay, very good. This is why Tyler gets paid the big bucks. The podcast <laughs> money goes to um, So when, when you have people that are in, on paper at least, loyal to the crown, and then they're asked to go fight and die for this country, you know, uh, you're going to go fight in France for England, England's interests, and you live in southern India, um, that just does a lot to the dynamic. And so that happened twice in World War One and World War Two. So the division of Bengal got somewhat interrupted by World War One. Um, the bravery and the sacrifice of the Indian soldiers in World War One did not go unnoticed. And that brought kind of a lot of, um, I think it, it, in, in a lot of um, kind of in the political eyes of the world, it um, raised the West's kind of perspective of India. Um, there's always obviously colonialism kind of in and of itself is um, by definition patronizing, but it, it kind of reduced that. And there was some added respect and um, for India after that happened because lots of people, um, lots of men went and fought and they died alongside soldiers from England, British, you know, loyal soldiers from Australia and the other colonies. And um, so that was a, an interesting shift that went on. Then in 1919, another kind of um, attempt, um, this was in 1919, there was the 1919 Government of India Act. And I learned several new words reading this Wikipedia page. And one of them was 
um, diarchical. Yeah, what's that? That's uh, it's kind of like a dual control system. So the way Wikipedia discussed it was whereby some areas like education, agriculture, infrastructure development, and local self-government became um, kind of the purview of the Indian ministers and legislators. So, okay, India, you guys, you know, all right, fine. We'll start showing you a little bit of respect. You guys can manage this stuff. Um, Mm. But other things like irrigation, land revenue, police, prisons, control of media remained within um, the power of the British governor and the council and all of the men in walrus Mm. mustaches, right? And so that was kind of an interesting middle ground, sort of an offering, um, you know, how kind of the British to be like, hey, India, maybe you can try and rule yourselves a little bit. Uh, Weird, by the way, that... uh agriculture was given to Indian jurisdiction, but irrigation was kept on the British side. Well, you can't make it too, you can't make it too simple. It can't be too simple. Yeah. This is layered. (laughs) Otherwise, what would all the men with walrus mustaches do? Fair. Yeah. Um, But this made it easier for Indians to be admitted into the civil service and to become army officers. So, you know, they were kind of put upon by these English dudes show up and are running everything. But then, in 1919 did kind of grant some some of their um, rights back. And then um, they're developed around this time, which is really important to understanding the eventual split in 1947 was the two nation theory. And it was this philosophy that the primary identity and the, the most important kind of unifying thing about Muslims in the Indian subcontinent is their religion. Um, and, and same with Hindus, like the, the most important line we could divide this very large room with um, is the religion line. It's not language. It's not ethnicity. It's not even really geography. It's um, um, that Indian Hindus and Muslims are two distinct nations, regardless of commonality. So this is the two nation theory. And there were different, um, you know, that's a, a, a pretty big um, generalization, but there were two kind of approaches to it um and people speaking at the time um one one person kind of describing this said it should be distinctly understood that this is not a united india it means a clear partition of india into a muslim india and a non-muslim india Mm -hmm. and there were different kind of schools of thought about that as you can imagine like for instance do we transfer populations do we divide a line and literally say okay all the muslims you now have to move and all the Hindus you have to move and to everybody get into their own corner. That's a little crazy. Or do we just have like, okay, this is kind of the Muslim side, the Hindu side, but anyone can live anywhere and we'll try and be cool to each other. It was um, kind of a, a huge ideological mismatch of how do we solve this problem of these two groups that admittedly had a lot of conflict and didn't have a ton in common. And there had been, um, you know, clashes going back hundreds and hundreds of years Um Another way that it was phrased that I thought was pretty powerful was Muslims and Hindus were irreconcilably opposed monolithic religious communities. And as such, no settlement could be imposed that did not satisfy the aspirations of the former, meaning Mm -hmm. basically this is a complete deadlock. There's no hope. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll talk about this more towards the end. But I think this is such an interesting thing to think about if you really feel like you have two groups of people. Um, kind of too ideological, religious, whatever it might be, that are just so opposed to each other. Is it the best idea to be like, look, let's just go our separate ways when when you're talking about a nation? I feel like there's real questions about that for um, like our country today. Not that there's any United States, right? Yeah. Not that there's any real discussion of like, well, let's split. But there are people who, you know, at least in the back of your mind, it might be like, wouldn't it be great if like, you know, (laughs) Like, think about how different um, Massachusetts is from New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Those are two, you know, do we even have business being the same country? Um, are we, you know, if you think about political division? Anyway, it's a, it, it, it's a sticky problem. I don't know. Uh, like, <clears throat> it's sticky it's- and it's interesting because we have not done that yet in the United States. Right. We had the chance to with the Civil War, but still, we're still united, you know? Right. There hasn't been any serious movement towards splitting quite yet. Sure. And even if there were, let's say that the Civil War had gone differently and we're like, all right, fine, South, you get to go do your own thing. Um, I think that the what we're going to get to right now in this discussion of Pakistan and India is like, that might not solve anything. As a matter of fact, it might make it way worse. 
yeah, uh-huh. because of just some of the logistics of it. So that brings us perfectly to the geographic partition of 1947. So within British India, the border between India and Pakistan was determined um, by a British government count, um, commissioned report prepared under the chairmanship of a London lawyer, Sir Cyril Radcliffe. Now, if you ask me, if you're trying to decide a really complex topic between Hindus and Muslims in this part of the world that's way far away from India, the guy you really want to have decided is someone named Cyril Radcliffe, because he's really probably got some great insight into what the people are thinking. Yeah, he probably speaks the language. <laughs> Definitely, he understands the nuances of the, uh, you know, of everything. So it was it was called the Radcliffe Line, which is where eventually they were like, okay, this is how we're going to carve this whole mamajama up, um, and regardless of how you feel about, you know, big government, small government, whatever, the term determined by a British government commission report should probably scare you when it comes to like, I don't know. That's, that's, that's not who I want making most decisions. I don't Mm -hmm. think. Um, And what it created were some enclaves, which we've talked about on podcasts before. Love. I love a good enclave. (laughs) So, Pakistan came into being with two non-contiguous enclaves, East Pakistan and West Pakistan, um, separated geographically by India, (laughs) (laughs) which kind of, you know, makes you wonder at what point is this no longer East and West Pakistan and is it just Pakistan and some other country, which to be sure is what eventually happened. East Pakistan became Bangladesh, what we know today as Bangladesh, and West Pakistan is now just Pakistan. Um, India was formed out of the majority Hindu regions of British India, and Pakistan, of course, was the Muslim areas. Um, in, in, a, in a certain way, it's a lot like the weirdness of Carter Lake, Iowa, which is a previous podcast episode. If you haven't listened to it, go give it a listen. But instead of um, a river carving and making this kind of weird, okay, what do we do now? It was like a weird British council of walrus mustache guys that just chopped something. <laughs> and Sir Cyril Radcliffe here by the way, is the fall leg. Exactly. He is the fall leg. That is <laughs> precisely accurate. Um, so as you can imagine, so basically this is, you know, let's give, we've got, you know, Hindus are mad at Muslim, Muslims are mad at Hindus. They don't get along. Let's just split it up. As you can imagine, that didn't go well. There was, a, first of all, just tons of confusion. Think about logistically if you just said that. What if you just said, all right, we're going to draw a line through Kansas and if you voted for this presidential person, you move over here. You mm-hmm. voted for this presidential person, you move over here. Or like, if you are an atheist, move over here. Everybody else move. Like, it's just insanity to try and divide these lines, even in a place um, like British India, where there were kind of really strong regions. Like, okay, this is clearly like a Hindu chunk of India of huh. um, British India. But still, how do you go ahead and do that? Um, And so there was widespread violence, there were riots, um, huge relocation of people. As you can imagine, if suddenly you live on the Hindu side of the line and you're a Muslim family, you are not, you know, going to want to stick around most likely. And so just as a snapshot, and again, there's a million Wikipedia articles that I'm kind of summarizing and moving on. So if this is interesting to you at all, um, go read them. And Tyler and I have discussed, we'll probably do other episodes on this topic somehow. But just as a snapshot, um, there's a lot that could be said about the, the violence and the uprising and the discord. Um, it's out of this conflict that um, we have a man named Gandhi that shows up and, and is trying to lead the way in a nonviolent fashion. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, he was a proponent of um, Indian self-rule, so he was an Indian nationalist. But he did not support, um, and basically, as I understand it, that's kind of in a larger sense of like England shouldn't be here. Colonial Get England shots. out. Yeah. Okay. Um, what did he, he also, think about uh, Pakistan being split? Did he want it to come back together? Um, he did not like the idea of divide as you can probably, you know, into it. He did not love the idea of like, let's take people and because they don't get along, let's separate yeah. them. Yeah. He, he didn't like that idea at all. <clears throat> um, and was vocally opposed to it. Um, but so just as a snapshot of kind of the horrible violence. So the Indian government claimed that 33,000 Hindu and Sikh women were abducted during this time. 
The Pakistani government claimed that 50,000 Muslim women were abducted during the riots. Now, of course, those are figures that you might want to look at with some skepticism because it's you, you have every reason in the world to inflate that number to make yeah. Pakistan or India look bad. But the numbers that we do have, by 1949, there were legal claims that 12,000 women had been recovered in India and 6,000 in Pakistan. Oh, so we're talking about thousands of people, and there was tons of horrible um, you know, accusations of everything that you can imagine, the, the abuse that these women were specifically targeted with. Um, and by 1954, there were over 20,000 Muslim women recovered from India. So a few years after those numbers I just gave you, um, 9,000 Hindu and Sikh women recovered from Pakistan. Um, and many of the Hindu and Sikh women refused to go back to India, um, fearing that their family would never accept them because they had been kidnapped. And they had um, many of them kind of the, the MO was they had been raped by these men. And so um, they were left without anywhere to go. I can't stay here among my enemy and my my home isn't going to accept me because um, of what I've been through. So that is just a heartbreaking and I mean, un unbelievable kind of human toll that happened. And that's just one small aspect of, of kind of what went on. And, and there's continued conflicts. Um, it's if, if you read the news today, I typed in to get to one of the Wikipedia pages, I just typed in Pakistan, India or something. And it, you look at the news today and there's all sorts of discussion about the, the tensions and the, the militaries mm -hmm. are always flexing their muscles. Um, on a slightly lighter note, um, there is a 30 Rock connection to, to this conflict. Tyler, are you aware of what I'm about to discuss? Yes, I love this too. I'll okay, tell you in yeah. a second why. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's a, I'm from the very small town of Eager, Arizona, and we have a saying that all roads go through Eager. Um, and that includes <laughs> anyone listening to this podcast. You now have a road that goes through Eager because... Um, there you go. You know yeah. me. And so anytime, anytime I meet someone and say, I'm from Eager, almost it, definitely, like no matter where I'm from, people are like, you know what? I knew a guy from Eager. And I'm like, there are 5,000 people in this town. How does <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I was a missionary in Guatemala, I told someone, hey, a, a Guatemalan family, I'm from Eager, Arizona. And a kid popped his head, like a 30-year-old guy popped his head from the other room. And he said, do you know Nathan Gleave? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're joking me, right? Of course I know Nathan Glee. What is going on in this world? Um, anyway, there's also the other saying that I firmly believe is that all roads go through 30 Rock, which is one of the greatest television shows. Ever. I do believe that. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a reference for everything. And in 30 Rock, there's a couple of moments where um, the Indian characters in the show kind of reference the, the discord and the distrust. Um, for instance, at one point... Um, uh, uh, an assistant brings somebody into an office and they both happen to be Indian. And he says, I apologize for bringing a Kashmiri into your office. <laughs> um, and then another episode, they're talking about some disaster that's happened. And that same character says, he says, this whole village got wiped out. And he says, was it in Indian Kashmir? And Durga's tried and pierced them from the skies. And um, that, at least that first episode <clears throat> was written by an Indian writer um, and his name is Valley Chandrasekharan. And so that just, that fills me with a little bit of joy. And, and you can understand that, that like, it's sort of like today, if you, you could pick a lot of places in the United States, which doesn't have, you know, roots going back nearly as far as these regions do. And just say like, tell me about like, well, Tyler, you can attest to this, especially in the Eastern States. I feel like, tell me about how Virginia feels about West Virginia. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and there's just like, you'd be like, oh, yeah, if you were writing a comedy show, you could make jokes about Tennessee could make fun of Virginia, you know, like, there's just all of this, of course, deep, yeah, deep history. And um, so out of all of this, um, that we've discussed, and lots of suffering, unfortunately, but there is um, continued conflicts and way more like, I don't even really understand, like, all of I don't really fully grasp those jokes from 30 Rock. I understand, like, I they they make me laugh on a certain level. But like, India, like Kashmir. Okay, I don't. That's a whole Wikipedia article. I need to go read about Kashmir and the conflicts there and stuff. Well, that's a funny thing. I thought of this quote too because K two is in Kashmir. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so many layers here. Yeah, many layers, and so that is a very cursory and I'm sure kind of cringeworthy for somebody who studies the the Indian subcontinent um, review of 
the really kind of, well, not kind of, the very sad um, kind of conflict that has resulted in the two independent nations of India and Pakistan, who still basically don't like each other to this day. So I was surprised to read this. I may have this wrong, but the languages of India and Pakistan are Hindi and Urdu, respectively. As far as I understand it, those languages are mutually intelligible, Hmm. but they are written in different scripts. So in theory, a Hindi person and an, uh, a person speaking Hindi and a person speaking Urdu would understand each other vocally, but if they were going to write down the words, they wouldn't be able to read it. That's bonkers. Hindi, yeah, Hindi is written, and oh, I may be really off with this. I think it is a script that is related to Sanskrit. I think that's right. I'm pretty sure that's Urdu right. Urdu is written in a script that looks similar to Arabic. Again, reflecting the Islam influence of the region. And what a what a kind of sad but also really powerful like example of how these people who really had a lot in common in some ways were like ripped apart and kind of put in their own corners. You know what I mean? That's so sad that they're mutually intelligible but they can't read each Yes, other. the walls feel very artificial. Like someone really <laughs> wanted there to be a wall there, you know? It's yeah. sad that they couldn't reconcile. Wow. I find it really interesting to talk about geographical things like K2 and give them a context of the human political history that's happening in the region. Obviously, this is kind of a sobering tale about Indian and Pakistan under Mm. British colonialism. It's a story that K2 did not ask for. (laughs) And (laughs) maybe 500 years from now, K2 won't even be in Pakistan. Maybe they'll redivide the the borders or whatever Mm -hmm. you know and it's not always going to be the same but at least for now when you're talking about k2 and you're thinking about pakistan there is a larger story to tell about the region and i'm glad that we brought that in Mm. so more about k2 this mountain is not in the himalayan range like we think of most of the tall mountains of the world are in the himalayas this one is a little bit further away Pakistan is quite far from Mount Everest. The range that it's in is called the Karakoram Range. And this is where the name K2 comes from. In the great trigonometrical survey of British India, when they were surveying all these mountains, they labeled the peaks in this area with a K for Karakoram and as serial numbers, K1, K2, K3, etc. I think it goes to like K35 or something. And then most of the K labels, they replaced by whatever local names already existed for the mountains, but they couldn't find a local name for K2, likely because of how remote it is. It's very far away from civilization. So the name K2 stuck, and today is referred to by speakers in the area as Ketu or Ketu, if they're not English speakers, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, We already mentioned it's on the border with China, Again, this is just very far away from Everest. Everest itself is surrounded by many of the tallest mountains in the world. There's kind of like a little circle around it, but this is not the same place. The summit of K2, like Everest, is also in the death zone. So over 8,000 meters tall, this makes K2 one of the 8,000ers, and there are only 14 of those in the world. It's 28,000 feet, and that's about 2,017 stories tall if you were in a building in an elevator. And just for scale, Everest is about 50 stories taller than that. Do you know what the tallest building you've ever been in is? I was trying to think. I think I've probably been in one that was these stories tall. Hmm. Not, no taller than that. I've never been to the Empire State Building or anything like that. Yeah, neither have I. I my answer is probably shockingly low, like probably less than, tw- I don't think I've ever been in a building with more than 20 stories. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't know. I don't know where I would have gone. Oh, do you know what? There is a 40 story building in Eager that I forgot about. Maybe the, there. In Eager? Really? No, I'm just kidding. Of course. Not. <laughs> I'm like, wow, what a skyline. <laughs> 
um yeah no i i don't know the the biggest building yeah maybe 20. wow um as we said k2 has a very distinct facade it is perfectly pyramid shaped and i want to reemphasize the fact that again it is very dangerous like they said, it is a savage mountain that tries to kill you. About one person for every four that reaches the summit is killed getting there. That's like 25%. Wow. And I read this uh, news article that was published recently about a group that went up to K2. They had a really great quote. It said, K2 is a collection of nightmarish natural challenges one more daunting than the other it is the coldest and windiest of climbs at places along the route climbers must navigate nearly sheer rock faces rising 80 degrees while also avoiding frequent and unpredictable avalanches glacier ridges can suddenly explode into cascades of giant chunks of ice It sounds like a video game level to me. Yeah. Well, or like you said, that previous quote, like it's actively trying to kill you. It is actively trying to kill you. I mean, it's accurate. Nail on the head. There are some features on K2 that are just bonkers to see pictures of or to read about. And I really have to recommend there's a lot of good YouTube videos out there. Some that are even just, you know, homemade by people climbing the mountain and they they take a video while they're up there. There's something called the Black Pyramid. That's a gigantic pyramid-shaped buttress that requires rock and ice climbing all in one go. And sometimes it's totally vertical. There's also something called House's Chimney, which is a hundred foot tall crack in a rock wall. And it was determined that the chimney was the safest way to get higher up the mountain. (laughs) Safer than, you know, not going vertically, like walking horizontal for some bit. No, that's out of the question. Wow. There's the bottleneck near the top where there's a huge serac of ice above you on one side. And a serac is like a big column of ice. They're very precarious and they can just break into avalanche like without any moment's notice. Yeah. That's on one side. On the other side, there's like a thousand foot drop and only a little snow between to walk through the two. So that's what you get on the top of this mountain. In the winter, the winds blow at 125 miles an hour. (laughs) The temperature goes down to negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit. By the way, uh, I think something interesting to note here is the fact that when you get into these tall mountains, there's no living organisms up there. And there are specific places, yeah, right. And there's specific places on the mountains where living things stop going. You know, mm-hmm. big mammals stop going, I think, above 10,000 or 15,000 feet. And then there's some bugs after that. There's like little spiders and things that live a little bit higher up, considered to be like the organisms at the highest place in the world. There's like a really strange moss that grows on Everest at like mm-hmm. 20,000 feet Hmm. but above that the next 10,000 feet there's nothing living up there all living things are below like a certain point on the mountain so obviously it's not Everest by any stretch of the imagination but I have I was talking a little bit about the mountain in Arizona um, in the Everest episode that I've been on and while it doesn't ever reach like completely devoid of life you get to a spot where it's just like oh there aren't trees anymore and it's just yeah and yeah. the trees that the very few trees that do grow are like the most grizzled, twisted, <laughs> like some of them are literally growing like sideways because the wind blows them so hard. Oh, that yeah. They, they like it. What should be like a 15 foot tree is like laid out like its trunk comes up and then does a direct 90 degree angle and it just goes along the ground like it's like it's grass. It's the weirdest thing. And um, and so. Yeah, I can imagine that once you get up even higher than that, yeah, of course. What, and, and that should be a, a, a signal to all of us humans, like, don't go up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's trying to tell you, like, stay <laughs> away. Jeez. 
So yeah, winter on K2 is just a nightmare. I can't even imagine it. Only eight expeditions have ever tried to ascend K2 in the winter. Why you would want to ascend already the deadliest mountain on Earth in a deadly season, I do not understand. But none of them had ever succeeded until last month, January 2021. Oh, wow. Ten Nepalese climbers completed the summit making it the last of the 8,000ers to be ascended in the wintertime. Wow. And by the way, the same day, a Spanish climber was killed. He fell hundreds of feet because he was trying to make the climb without using supplemental oxygen. So further evidence supporting my theory that if you are up there, (laughs) there's something going on. I mean, Get down from there, please. (laughs) Anyone listening to this podcast who is climbing K2 currently, please come home. Take your earbuds out. (laughs) Turn around. Turn around. Head downwards, not upwards. (laughs) (laughs) It's like today I, I had to go into my daughter's room because during her like quiet time, she pulls out the drawers of her dresser and climbs up on top of it. There's nothing up there. She just wants to be on top of the thing and stand up there. (laughs) So, like, it's the same thing. Like, you silly, silly child, what are you doing up here? Please get down before you hurt yourself very badly. You may need to watch those habits when she becomes an adult. If she starts looking towards the Himalayas, I mean, be careful. Yeah, I'm going to tell her that the (laughs) highest mountain in the world is in South Dakota. Yes, or Mountain Pinogus. Yeah, that's the highest mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Uh, So that same article that I was looking at in the news had some other really good quotes about this. There's one from a particular climber, and she says, the deadly mountain appeals to the unique spirit of a mountaineer testing the strongest climber. The fascination for K2 for climbers is that while it seems so accessible, I don't know what that's referring to because it doesn't look accessible to me. (laughs) It is still really, really hard. On K2, she says, the only guarantee is that something is going to go wrong. She says, mountaineers are either risk takers or reward seekers by nature, and they believe they can beat the odds. But K2 flicks them down and makes them earn their stripes before they can ever see those glorious summit views. So that's K2. What do you think? So I've, I said this in the Everest episode. I've said it here. Um, I, don't, I don't have this, this bone in my body that makes me want to go climb this mountain. <laughs> but I can definitely relate to um, really wanting, like we, we're shocked because it's like, look how hard this mountain is to climb. Why would you want to do it? And on a certain level, that's why you want to do it because it's the hardest thing you could go do. So while I do not want to climb K2, I can really understand that idea. Um, And maybe this is like too strained a metaphor, but literally like my daughter. So she's in her room. She's played with her toys as long as she's wanted to. And then she's like, I could get up there. I don't know what I do when I get up there, but it's, I know I can do it. And I know that it's like the highest part of the room and it's the same. I don't know. I I understand the impulse for sure. Um, I'm sure I have it in other forms um, and that lead me to do things that other people probably wouldn't be interested in doing, but yeah, what a, what a, what a gene you have to be born with to be the Mm. person who's like, not only do I want to do K2, I want to do it in the winter or without oxygen, but clearly there's, there's, Uh, an appeal a really big appeal because people keep trying i think uh we keep making fun of people who go to do these climbs but i can also relate to this in a sense because first of all it's stunningly beautiful when you look at the videos it's like the sky is a different color up there you're just in a part of the world that nobody lives in yeah it feels kind of remote and isolated and like a treat that no one gets to see except for you But I also relate to the feeling that um, K2 is the harder mountain and I want to go prove myself on the hard one. It's kind of a, almost like a poetic irony that Mount Everest is taller, but K2 is harder. 
at the second tallest in the world, it's tougher than Mount Everest somehow. And I think anyone who goes to climb K2 must have that chip on their shoulder thinking like, you know, Everest is the touristy one. I'm going to go do the real one. Yeah. Um, Yeah, maybe we shouldn't make too much fun because my wife, when she um, was at college, she went to a counselor's office and said, what's the hardest major on campus? And that's the one she signed up for. And obviously, I think she also had some interest in it. It appealed to her on some level. But, um, and I I really respect that. I mean, that's really amazing that somebody would do that. And people do that in lots of ways and lots of, you know, areas. Um, But yeah, it, it is interesting that it's, it's the it's the bigger challenge even though it's it's not as high two footnotes before we close out today the first is that cyril radcliffe the man who drew the line that divided india and pakistan had never been east of paris before his assignment to british india shockingly he was given only five weeks to complete the job the poet wh auden wrote a short and critical poem about him. It's called Partition and is absolutely worth reading. The second footnote is that when I mentioned to my friend that K2 had a deaths to summits ratio of 25%, she said, those are worse odds than Russian roulette. Something to think about. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We're having a great time making these episodes and we have loved connecting with everyone who's been listening in. It's fun enough for me getting to have these conversations with race every week, but it's really been a treat to hear people reach out about the episodes, almost as though we were all in one big room as part of the conversation together. If you want to follow us on social media, you can check out at Race and Tyler Pod on Twitter, at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia on Instagram, or you can email us at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia at gmail.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.